The following message is brought to you by Baltimore Bible Church. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So now let's open our Bibles and follow along as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. Privilege and honor of uh, welcoming to our pulpit uh, Dr. Carl Hargrove. He serves as a staff pastor at Grace Community Church in Sun Valley, California. Uh, pastors the Anchored Fellowship Group there and also serves with uh, Grace Advance. Uh, he and his wife uh, Joanna have five children. Uh, Carl was one of my professors at the Master Seminary. I also spent some time uh, with him. We served together uh, at a church, Fairview Heights uh, Baptist Church in Inglewood, California for a year uh, while I was out at seminary. Uh, went on my first missions trip with, uh, with Carl. We went to the Dominican uh, Republic uh, together and I uh, really enjoyed a, a great time uh, over there and uh, really has a heart for, uh, for missions and also serving uh, with a, a missions organization for Africa and uh, uh, taking uh, some frequent trips uh, over there to help our brothers uh, out over there in Africa. And uh, I can tell you some stories about Carl. He's a, he's a man who's, uh, who's fearless and uh, can share some stories about uh, trips to Haiti where, you know, people burn tires, you know, gangs and things like that. And uh, uh, Carl is one of those guys who will get out of the bus and move the tire out the street uh, just so uh, that the bus can advance. But, uh, but anyway, Carl's just a, a great brother. I consider him a, an older brother. And uh, you may remember that statement from uh, John 1:47, where uh, Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and he says, behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And uh, that's one of the things that I can truly say about Carl, that he's a man in whom there's no deceit. Uh, he is who he is. He's a person of integrity. And uh, come on up, uh, Brother Carl, and, uh, and minister God's word to us. Thank you. Excellent. Hello, everyone. How are you doing? Uh, I like that. Great. Where is that great coming from? Great. It's good to be great in the Lord. Um, I'm thankful for the privilege to come to you to speak the Word of God. What a great occasion here. Um, ten years, um, one often asks, where does the time go? And when we make good investments, um, we'll see the fruit of it. Um, by God's faithfulness, and I'm thankful for what I see here. So many new faces from the last time that I visited, and something tells me uh, when I come back again, there'll be more new faces as well. We continue to pray for that, uh, and not just to have people, obviously, but to have uh, people who are hearing the Word of God. And that's why even in this uh, celebration conference, um, that uh, the theme is the sufficiency of Scripture, uh, because without that, we have nothing at all. We have no hope, actually. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, if we don't believe the Scripture and if it's not sufficient, if it's not what it says it is, then what is the point of us even being here even now? We should just eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Um, but that's not the case, amen? <laughs> it is indeed true. It is sufficient because it is God-breathed. Uh, pray with me for a moment. Lord, thank you for your goodness and grace and, and even for the moments ahead as I unfold these words, eternal words, secure words, sufficient words. I pray that they would work in all of our hearts who know you as Savior. And if there is anyone that hears these words who are outside of your favor, that you might draw them in. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, let me tell you what I, I'm going to do with this topic of the sufficiency of scripture in pastoral ministry. And that's what I was asked to do 
and have in one sense I've made some modifications to the message as I've heard other things already said in the conference itself and um, I'm going to first give us some definitions. I'm going to give you a definition of sufficiency. I want to give you a definition and show you some real uh, thorough biblical examples of what is scripture itself, God speaking. I want to give you a definition of what does it mean, pastoral, because I'm saying the sufficiency of scripture in pastoral ministry, what does it mean when we say pastoral, and even a question that may seem obvious, but not necessarily so, um, a definition of ministry. What is ministry? So sufficiency, scripture, pastoral ministry. And from there, I, I want to then go to a text that will be a concentration. And, and I want to expand the thought from Ephesians chapter 4. And we can all look at it right now. Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians 4, I think, suppose I can move that. Ephesians 4, what does Paul say? Clearly familiar text. Um, instrumental for us as we are involved in Christian ministry. Here, Paul writes in verse 11, Ephesians 4, and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastor teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. And what I want to do with the rest of the message is I have first given these definitions Then I want us to look at what does it mean, the equipping? How does a pastor equip the body? And how is scripture instrumental to him equipping the body of Christ for the work of service? And, but straight away, sufficiency. We say, well, the sufficiency of scripture is this theme in the conference. And I want to give you several definitions and one comes from a, a worthy work. It's a dictionary for theological interpretation of the Bible. And this is their definition of sufficiency. It says, the doctrine of sufficiency of Scripture is at heart an assertion of the nature of God's relationship to Scripture and consequently its authoritative significance. That is, now, Scripture is, as we know and would um, affirm, related to God, not simply related, but it is God-breathed. It, it is the breath of God that comes forth, therefore automatically has authority because God has a divine authority over all creation. So what he speaks has authority. A simple way to consider it is, I uh, mentioned earlier that we have five children, um, and now they're all adult age, and, but there was surely a time when I had authority in the home. And I spoke, and I expected a response. And there were times when Joanna would be, because she homeschooled all, all of them, I would be away, and I would come home, and she would say, um, talk to your dad. And guess what happened? <laughs> when they talked to my dad, it was, I had a certain voice, and it was, what did you do today? Unacceptable. <laughs> and I would speak and say, now respond. And there was a sense of authority, and there was a certain look on their face that somehow I had that mom didn't have. Now, she had an authority because she is still a parent, but let's be plain about it. There's a difference between me speaking and my dear wife speaking. Authority. He is the one that's in charge. 
And so when God speaks, he speaks with the sense of divine authority. Do we all agree with that? Oh, we must. Because if you don't, well, then what do we have? Well, we have a society that's saying it is its own authority. But it is not. That authority is divinely originated. So, but it goes on to say it is regularly distinguished into two aspects. Number one, material sufficiency asserts that scripture contains everything necessary to be known and responded to for salvation and faithful discipleship. Faithful discipleship. And then it would say there's formal sufficiency claims that scripture as the word of God ought not ultimately to be subject to any external interpretive authority, such as the teaching authority of the church or a spirit-filled individual, and so significantly is self-interpreting. So what it's saying is God's word is that own authority. The church has no authority over it. The scripture has authority over the church. Do we agree with that? And even a person that may say that they're spirit-filled, they have no authority over the Word of God. The Word of God has an authority over them. And this is why it's atrocious when you hear so-called preachers or teachers that are saying, well, the Spirit told me. And now, there is some sense in which, obviously, we'll, we'll cover it in a bit, that we can be enlightened, even as our Brother Lance told us about illumination, we can get an understanding, but that understanding has no authority over the Word of God. And often, people that make a statement like that, they will follow up, and then they will say, this is what I believe it means. Oh, that's a danger, is it not? I don't really want to know what you think it means. The question is, what does it mean? Or a person may say, this is what it means to me. That is incorrect. It's not what it means to you, it's what it means. And we discover that meaning by the principles of proper interpretation. And this is why you need to be in a Bible church that believes these things. Another definition says this, and it's from a work that's called The Sufficiency of Scripture in the Biblical Canon. It was actually in, a, in an article by a Trinity Journal article, and it says this. First, there are four aspects they say. First, it contains all the articles one must believe in order to attain salvation. Everything we need to come to faith. Number two, it contains all precepts that one must obey in order to live piously before God. Here are the precepts you need if you want to be serious about your Christian life. It's here. It's contained here. You can live a godly life before the living God because God has revealed the path to take. Third, it is said it's sufficiently plain to convey this information to an attentive reader. And what is it saying? Um, a doctrine that communicates that God's word is not secretive. The, the message is plain. If your heart is sincere, you can read it, study it, meditate over it, pray, and the sense of it you can have. Okay? And fourth, it's self-authenticating. God's word says it's God's word, and we believe that. Amen? Amen. We do. We must. The scripture is, in fact, sufficient. Then we think about scripture itself. Um, a, a wonderful article by a French um, scholar, René Posh. And he did a work in the ins inspiration and authority of Scripture. And he noted this in the Old Testament. 
listen to what I'm going to share with you. In the Old Testament, he noted that 3,808 times it conveys the express word of God. Nearly 4,000 times the word of God. And some of those instances are 420 times in the Pentateuch particularly when God is saying to Moses, write down these words. In Psalm 119, the psalmist refers to the word or the words of Jehovah 24 times. 175 times the psalmist uses different expressions to tell us this is the very words of God. Now, if we go to some of the other books, Isaiah, 120 times, it is the word of God. God is speaking. Jeremiah, consider this. Jeremiah, 430 times, the word of God. God is speaking. God is saying. Ezekiel, 329 times, God is speaking. God is saying, therefore, we must listen. In the book of Amos, 53 times, God is speaking. Haggai, listen to this. Haggai, 27 times, it's, he's saying he's speaking. You say, well, it's only 27 times. Well, Haggai only has 38 verses. <laughs> Amen? Amen. Amen. Zechariah, 53 times, God is speaking. So we've determined it is sufficient. Do we agree with that? Scripture is God speaking to us, speaking. Therefore, we must listen. And we can find any number of other texts. Go with me, if you will, 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. What does it tell us there? 1 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul says, For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you received it not as the word of what? What does it say? Men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs this work in you who believe. Now notice that last statement. It is performing a work in you who believe. Why? Because it is the word of God. It, for the believer, it has been internalized. For the believer, they reflect on it and they meditate on it and it changes for the believer, they are like that, the, the person that is by the streams of water from Psalm 1. For the believer, they're like Joshua said, if you would meditate on this book, then you will have success. For the believer, it's like what God's word says in John 17 and 17. Thy word is truth, therefore sanctify them in truth. God's word is a transformative word to us, is it not? Absolutely it is. So God's word, sufficient, God's word, it speaks to us. Then we might say then, when we say God's word uh, is sufficient, we're saying it has this divine capability to bring about every result that it intends to do. Then what about ministry? We say, well, the sufficiency of scripture in ministry, what is ministry? And I would say that ministry is really the practice of the Christian life in the local church that will then have an effect locally and then globally. So we're living out our faith in the local church. Ministry is the people of God using their natural talents and their spiritual giftedness for the edification of the body for great commission purposes. And it all ends there. You need to understand that. All that we do and all that we say and this gathering itself, it must have in its end, its final result, great commission purposes. 
This is not simply for Baltimore Bible Church to celebrate. We celebrate the faithfulness of God and then reflecting on the faithfulness of God and then perhaps even renewing our commitment to God and our commitment to the sufficiency of Scripture. Now we are more energized to go away from this place into wherever the God... The Lord has us in our respective places of influence for great commission purposes. Any celebration, any conference, any workshop, any seminar that is not driven by great commission purposes should be set aside. It is not biblical. It is not ministry. As we read earlier, what God gave apostles and prophets and pastor teachers for what purpose? For the work of the service, the equipping of the saints for the work of service. And ultimately, it means the Great Commission. Your natural talents, and why did I distinguish the two? Your natural talents, some of you have natural abilities. You have a natural skill set, and you use that natural skill set for the glory of God. You heard wonderful music, and even as they were tuning it um, before some of you arrived, that's the use of natural talents to say, let's do this to the glory of God. And some of you have spiritual giftedness, administration. Uh, some of you are, have the, the gift of teaching. Some of you have a gift of, of wisdom. Those are natural abilities now also with spiritual giftedness that are used for the glory of God. There are people that have an ability just to look at buildings and say, this is the best design for this building, a natural ability that can be used for the glory of God. This is ministry. And so the pastor equips using the sufficient word of God for this purpose. And then also, I said, let's define pastoral pastoral ministry. When we say pastoral, it is really an investigation into the role of biblically qualified elders who are called to prepare the people of God for the Great Commission. That's it. What is my role? What is your pastor's role here? What is he called to do? What is he called to be? And it is to equip you for Great Commission purposes. The pastor is privileged to be a representative of the great shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? And he is called to feed the sheep so that they would grow, and as they grow, the church is built, and as the church is built, it can have a reach beyond its walls. It is what the Scripture tells us in John 21. Feed my sheep three times. It is the thought of 1 Peter chapter 5. Shepherd the flock of God among you. It is a thought of Ezekiel 34, where the genuine shepherds are those that care for the people of God. And so we go back to our text, and it says, well, God has given some as apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastor teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the building up of the body of Christ, to be built up, to do what? To be an edifice, a place, not a building, a place where people are encouraged and they're trained to go into the world to reach the lost. That's our purpose. How many of you, I know we heard from Lance yesterday that he um, just read the word of God and no one was there and he was saved because God's word is sufficient, amen? Amen. But many of us, someone shared the gospel with us, a person came to us, and it was still God saying, God said to me, 
When I was at the University of Cincinnati, God said to me through someone else, you really don't know the Lord, Carl. Oh, wait a minute, but I can tell you about Jesus Christ. And I can tell you that Jesus Christ came. And I can tell you that Jesus Christ lived a life. And I can tell you that Jesus Christ died. And I can tell you that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Doesn't that make me a Christian? Well, the scripture also tells us what? You believe, you do well. <laughs> the demons also believe and tremble. <laughs> they have the facts of the gospel and there are many people who are walking dead men. They have the facts of the gospel, but they have not come to grips with their need for the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that moment, what happens? The Holy Spirit, he opens our eyes and we realize, oh my, I'm undone. And I realized that I was undone at the University of Cincinnati and my eyes were opened. And that's because someone shared the gospel with me and someone that was committed to the sufficiency of Scripture and someone that had been trained in the local church and then they went out fulfilling Great Commission purposes. But let's pay attention to Ephesians 4 just for a moment. He says, equipping. Um, and the word straightforward, at least in the English translation, is straightforward. But there is some nuance to it because... Uh, there's a sense in which the word can be used, even for a setting of a bone. It, it communicates the sense of preparation. And when you think about the setting of a bone, you, you set a bone so that you can be restored to proper purposes. It's broken now. Let's reset it so that I can be used for purposes. And obviously here, divine purposes. So the pastor is using the sufficient word of God to help the people of God be prepared for gospel purposes. And with the time that I have remaining, what I want to do is give you, there's six means, there's six ways, if you will, that I think he equips the people of God with the word of God. And number one is this, he does it through personal sacrifice. It's done through personal sacrifice. The scripture gives us the greatest example in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it tells us what? The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. A pastor endures the test of ministry. He demonstrates a willingness to experience life accordingly. Life can be difficult and ministry can be difficult. I don't know that I've ever met a person, uh, uh, and I could ask the brothers that are here that I, know, that I know that have pastoral experience. If I asked Lance, I know he would say, brother, have you ever met anyone in pastoral ministry for any significant amount of time who has not had heartache in the church. I've, ne I've never met that person. I've met some that are on their honeymoon and everything is just wonderful. It's the greatest experience whatsoever. Everyone loves me at the church. I love everyone at the church. And then lo and behold, <laughs> you go see him a, a couple years later. And his head is a bit down. He's a bit discouraged because he's gone through difficulty in the life of the church. But it requires sacrifice. The example is the Lord Jesus Christ. And what must the man of God do when he finds himself facing those situations? I believe he must be like David uh, at the episode at Ziklag when they thought about stoning David and Samuel. And it says that David encouraged himself in the Lord. Encourage himself in the Lord. Encourage himself in what? Well, we can see throughout the psalmist, in particular the psalms of David, he would encourage himself in the word of God. In communion with the living God as well. 
So it is absolutely necessary. Owen, John, that is John Owen, he had a habit and he said that there would be a time in his life, he said that when he felt like he was becoming worldly, if you will, he would dive into large portions of the Word of God. And he actually said when he felt that he was becoming worldly, he would read just 40 chapters of, of some book. And I find myself there as well. I find that the cure is let me get into God's Word. And I've done that before. I felt worldly. And when, you, when one says worldly, I'm not saying that I had some appetite necessarily for the things of the world. I mean that I'm distracted. This is what I mean, that I'm not sure if I have as much gospel focus as I should. I'm not sure that my thoughts about God are what they should be about God and the way that God is deserving because he's a great and awesome God. And so that's worldliness from that standpoint. And I've done it, and I've just opened the gospel of John. And I find myself now, let's go through some epistles, and then three, sometimes there have been occasions, four hours later, ah, oh, relief. <laughs> Because of the word of God, amen? It's life-giving, is it not? And if it is, we should find ourselves there. Um, it's that water. We were recently, my wife and I and some people from the Master's Seminary, uh, we were in Israel. As a matter of fact, we were in Israel and Jordan. We were there for three weeks quite a long trip. It was wonderful. I love being there uh, and seeing the affirmation of God's word when you look at places and, and you say, oh, that's where that occurred. And, and now I understand the terrain better. And I can imagine that they made their way through here. As, as a matter of fact, one episode that is forever in my mind is from 1 Samuel 13, 14. Jonathan uh, is going to battle with the Philistines and he <clears throat> they're there at mishmash and he looks up and says well if they call us to come up to them we'll go up and we'll fight them and if they say we'll come down to you we'll wait for them and we'll fight them here but the Philistine says what come up to us and so what does um, Jonathan and his armor bearer his armor bearer they climb up and they scale up and they kill 20 Philistines and then the people who are in the caves come out because they have courage and they chase the Philistines um, back a great distance. And I thought, forget Navy SEALs. <laughs> Dude, I mean, see, seeing the area that they climbed up and it's not like they have repelling ropes and they have, you know, special boots um, and things like that. No, they have their, you know, sandals <laughs> and it's an armor bearer and the armor bearer was quite the man himself and he comes up and they kill 20 philistines like that but let's remind ourselves they only did it i mentioned you know like they're surpassing the navy seals no it's not surpassing the navy seals they had the spirit of god with them that's what gave them success do you agree with that that's right but see i'll never that land now seeing it wow and the areas that we went into, the desert, as the people were wandering through, and we got out of the bus, and the bus, we have our water in there, and it's AC, and the seats are cushiony. And we got in and said, let's just walk around for a while. And we all had a devotion in the wilderness, and it was very hot at the time. We thought, 40 years of this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> 40 years of this. But we also, we went to areas which are called a wadi, an area where there's some water stream, and around it, it's going to be what? Green. 
all of a sudden you're in the desert and you see this green because a little wadi is there because a stream is coming through, a creek is coming through. There's some flow that's coming from a mountaintop and it's settling here and around it is green in the midst of a desert. And this is what the Word of God does. It is that water. It is a life-giving water. And we may find ourselves in a desert, if you will, but if we would make our way to the sufficient Word of God, we can say, oh, there is relief. There is relief. No, it's, he sacrifices, but yet he has a place to go. The sufficiency of Scripture in pastoral ministry, number two, is this. Uh, the pastor uses the Word of God because he's also a protector of truth. Protective truth. Consider 1 Timothy 3.15. Turn that with me. And what does it say? 1 Timothy 3.15. It says plainly. Notice verse 14. I am writing these things to you. Hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed. I write so that you will know. How one ought to conduct himself. In the household of God which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the what? Truth. Truth. Uh, we live in an age where truth is relative. Uh, we live in an age where a, a person will say, well, that is your truth. This is my truth. Who would have ever thought, and I know you've probably heard it before by perhaps your own pastor or other pastors, because we're sort of in this climate in our culture right now. What is happening to us? How is it that we do not know what a man is anymore? How is it that we don't know what a woman is anymore? How is it that a person can uh, take their child to school? Notice I said they take their child to school. They drop them off. They give them their lunch money. They make sure at times their shoes are tied. And they say, I'll be here to pick you up at 12 o'clock or 2 o'clock. But we have foolish, work, wicked individuals that would tell us that that child can come to your home and actually say, Daddy, I don't really think I'm a boy anymore. I want to be a girl. And then you are supposed to adhere to that. You're supposed to allow a five-year-old, a seven-year-old, an 11-year-old, a 12-year-old to make a decision like that. Idiocy. Spiritual idiocy. Do you agree with me? You don't have to use that word, but go ahead. No, it is. It's spiritual idiocy. The same child that you say to that child, I'm going to pick you up, honey, because you don't know your way back to the house. Right? Is this not true? Is, no, you know I'm speaking the truth right now, don't you? You can't make your way back home, but you can decide that you're no longer what God created you at birth. No. No. So we must protect the truth. And what is the truth? God's sufficient word. We must protect it. It's, it's this pillar and protector of truth. Pastoral ministry says we believe in the su sufficient word. We will teach the sufficient word. We will guard the sufficient word. Because it is the only thing that will give order to a society astray. But you have to be careful because he's also protective of people who will creep in. Acts chapter 20. 
Paul, church at Ephesus, and what did he say? He, he's crying because he realizes that at some point in time, there are going to be people who will infiltrate what? The church. We understand it from the White House. We understand it from the governor's office. We understand it at times from the mayor's office. We understand it from the city council, but then it happens within the church, so he must be a protector of his people in the church. And that's why it's also necessary at times for him to say, do not read that person. And that's why it's necessary at times to say, this individual. Why am I, why am I being vague when I'm trying to make a specific point? Uh, let me not be vague with you. So it means this. No, uh, Joyce Myers is a heretic. No, Benny Hinn is not to be tolerated. No. Andy Stanley, in his warped view of Scripture and how he understands the Old Testament and the New Testament and how he understands the purpose of the body of Christ, is warped. That's, you have to protect people. I'm not, if I'm a father and I'm trying to protect my wife and I'm trying to protect my kids and I know someone specifically is after them, I don't simply say, well, avoid that person. Well, Dad, which person? Well, that person. I don't want to be unkind because, you know, calling names could be insensitive. Someone's feelings could be hurt. No, no, no. I'm a protector. You must be a protector. Absolutely. He does this also through counseling. He does it through counseling. How does he counsel? He counsels with the word of God. It's the thought, it's familiar text, um, 2 Timothy 3.16. The word of God is what? It is inspired and it's profitable for what? For three things. He says it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, and for correction. So he uses and he teaches people the word of God so that when they're counseling, it is genuinely authentic biblical counseling. And they have this sense in which they have a confidence in the word of God to use it in every counseling situation. They can use it to rebuke and they can use it to comfort and they can use it to encourage how many times have I spoken with a person and I've been in a counseling situation and at times I have to order my thoughts and say, what is the scripture that's useful to this person and to their soul? And at times I realize, no, I can't come at them with this sense of perhaps passion. They need more comfort here. And you think about words that you can share with them. And there have been times I've been by someone's bedside and they're about to go and they're about to cross the Jordan, if you will. And what do I say? Now, I've learned over the years that sometimes you don't say anything. You just listen, and you're just there, and then you pray. And there have been times that someone has said to me, a dear soul that I can think of even now, they said, they said Pastor, do you have a word for me? Now, do you think, which word do you think I gave them? <laughs> then I said, okay, let's look at some Psalms. <laughs> Let's look at what is awaiting you in heaven. Let's look at this reality that there will no longer be any tears and no longer pain. Let's look at this reality that cancer is done away. No more chemotherapy. No more radiation. Yeah. You can, that curly hair you used to have, it'll come back again. <laughs> yeah. You counsel with the word of God. Because it's sufficient, is it not? Um, 
And see, when we do this, this is using the sufficient word in pastoral ministry for the equipping of the body through the work of service that it will be built up and ultimately built up for great commission purposes. And I need to keep saying that. And we need to keep saying that to ourselves. Why are we here? Why are you here? Why do you have a music ministry that we can be built up to words? Say, for instance, the thought is Colossians 3.16. These, these words that come from psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Then you can be built up. Why do you have kids in, you know, right now in the nursery and VBS and things like that so they can be built up and be little saints, we pray, and they'll grow up and be larger saints and will have a role in the body of Christ? So why did we have a picnic yesterday? Why, why does that have to do with the sufficient scripture in the word of God? Because you enjoy fellowship with one another and you encourage one another. And the delight to see a future in a church when kids are scampering up that, um, what do you call that thing? The, the bouncer. And they're coming down and you're hearing a wee, wee. <laughs> what a wonderful sound that is, is it not? And you, I'm sure there are conversations that are taking place about life and, and about Christ and about the church. And, and when did you come and why did you come? I came because I heard the word of God preach. That's why I'm here. That's all a part of it as well. The pastor also uses a sufficient word in praying. You say, how so? Go turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. And I'm going to give you this phrase. It is through praying, because obviously we should pray for one another. The scripture tells us that. You remember the prophet um, where he said, you know, if I do not pray for you, it says, I would sin against the Lord by not praying for you. It's a sin if I did not pray for you. So I'm going to say it's biblically informed prayer. A pastor's prayer must be biblically informed. Ephesians chapter um, 1. Ephesians 1. And it tells us here, beginning in verse 15, he says, For this reason also, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. How are you going to pray, Paul? How are the missionaries praying for them? What scripture is informing your mind? What biblical principles inform your mind? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom that you would live life skillfully and of illumination and in the knowledge of him. I want you to grow into a greater knowledge of Christ and who he is. And notice he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, they will be illumined, that you would see with greater clarity who Christ is. And what is it that I want you to see with greater clarity? In this text he says, that you would know what is the hope of his calling. What he's saying is that you may understand the hope of your calling, but I want you to see it crystallize. I want you to see with clarity. Uh, a basic illustration, but nonetheless, I give it to you. Um, I have, you know, I have to use corrective lenses for distance. I don't need them at all for reading. As a matter of fact, if I have them on and I try to read, I can't. Um, and right now, I, I use monovision. And um, because I have contacts and I'll use the contacts, but if I have both in, 
I can see so clearly around the back. I could see probably to where the jumpers were. But right now, if I tried to read, I can't do it. So the doctor said, well, just do monovision. What do you mean? So I put in one contact that helps me. I can read. And when I need to kind of focus, I can see in a distance for a bit. Odd, but nonetheless, I do it. I've been doing it for years. And some say, don't you get a headache when you do that? So far, I have not. Um, but if I take it out, I can read. But guess what? Lance and in the back there, you become a little cl- unclear. And when he says, I'm praying that your eyes would be enlightened, he said, put in your lenses. You can see that you have a hope of calling. You can see that you have an inheritance. But when you put in these lenses of illumination, and I'm going to pray that you can put them in, if you will. I'm going to pray that you have them. You can see more clearly what God has for you. So it's informed prayer. And he wants them to understand. Notice verse 19. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe? These in accordance to the working of the strength of his might. I want you to understand that in this Christian life, you can walk with divine power. Look at Ephesians chapter 3. Here he wants them to understand as well. So informed prayer is biblically informed prayer. I want you to understand the great love of Christ. Notice what he says, verse 18. That you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, height, and depth. And to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Wow. Do you ever just pause and think just how much Christ loves you? Do you meditate on that? Do you contemplate that? Um, I've known the Lord since 1983, 40 years that I've known the Lord. And I was sharing this recently, I shared it again. 40 years I've known the Lord. Um, pastoral ministry started, then it's like, you know, a bit over 30 years ago. Teaching at, you know, a seminary that is known for its uh, commitment to scripture, doctrinal purity. But uh, I, I tell you, friend, I say it every time. I still bask in the love of Christ. I'll never outgrow it. As a matter of fact, the more I discover, the more I read, the more I think about it, the more I study it, the more I realize I don't know what great love he has for us. Briefly, I just want to make this statement. It's through caring. He does it through caring for people. It's personal and intimate interaction with them. It's the thought in principle from James 1.27, because James there says, what is pure and undefiled religion? Pure and undefiled religion is that you spend time with widows and with orphans, and you keep yourself undefiled from the world. You care for people and their souls. And with my remaining time, I want to come to this last thing that we use a sufficient scripture for. It's preaching. It's preaching. So we said it's sacrificing, it's protecting, it's caring, it's counseling, it's praying. The last thing is preaching. Number one, preaching must be instructional. If it's you, we're using the word of God, let's go to a number of places. Look at Romans 15.4 with me. Romans 15.4. Number one, it's instructional. 
Notice what it says in Romans 15.4. It says, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for your instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have what? What does it say? Hope. Instructional. It is giving guidance. It is that parent to the child. It's that teacher to the student. And so the word of God is that. Look at 1 Corinthians 7.10 with me. 1 Corinthians 7.10. Here, instruction, he says, Paul says, but to the married I give instructions. Not I. Notice he says, not I, but the Lord. It is, in fact, authoritative that the wife should not leave her husband. That is your instruction. The word of God is sufficient. We, when we make tough decisions in ministry, when at times we have to rebuke or correct, we must make sure that it is based on God's authoritative word. Look with me at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians 4. And I've often, well, I don't know if I've said this often, but I've said it fairly frequently. I, I love being in Bible churches because when you say turn, you hear the sound of pages. That's a wonderful sound to a preacher. You have to know that. That is to a real preacher. And I'm not, you understand what I mean by real preacher. Like your pastor is a real preacher. And so imagine, I, I can't understand some of these preachers, they never hear the sound of pages turning. Never. That's not preaching. How can it possibly be preaching? How can it be instructional? It cannot be. Anyway, <laughs> I was about to, <laughs> I was about to get started. First Thessalonians 4, 1 and 2. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus Christ that you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God. So preaching is instructional for what end that you would understand this divine calling that you have, this privilege that you, that you have to walk, as Paul would say in Ephesians 4.1, in a manner worthy of your calling. But I love how Paul states it here to the Thessalonians. He says, walk in this way and to please God. And this is where we must back away at times from our life and realize what we were before coming to Christ and how the Word of God attached itself to our mind, how the Spirit opened our eyes and we came to Christ and now a life that was of one of futility and one of darkness and one that was following the course of this world. Now we can actually please God. What a privilege! I mean, brothers and sisters, you celebrate because now you can come to a place where you can be instructed in how you can please God. Whereas before, your life was displeasing to him. But God showed you what? Mercy and kindness, and he showed you grace. But he tells them, also, excel still more. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 1 Thess 5. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you, who's diligently laboring. Uh, the missionary is, the pastor is, the elders are, and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction and that you esteem them highly in love because of their work. So it's instructional. But preaching is not only instructional. Preaching is exhortational. It's exhortational. 
It is the idea that we're taking the commands and principles and expectations of Scripture and we exhort the body of Christ to excel, to be more, to strive, to hunger for more. This is what we do. Not only is it instructional and um, exhortational, it's also applicational. What do I mean by that? That is, we take the Word of God and we go from what are the implications of a text, the theology of a text, and we say, now, this is how you live it out in your life. And then once we go from the implication to application, then we can have transformation in the lives of people because they understand more readily, this is what God wants me to be. This is how he wants me to think. This is how he wants me to live differently than how I lived before. But preaching is also eschatological. What do I mean by that? It's taking Paul's pattern where Paul said, it is already and not yet. Uh, We have received, but we have not fully received. I am sanctified, being sanctified, and I will be ultimately sanctified. I have a knowledge, I'm growing in knowledge, and I will have a full knowledge. We are striving for that, are we not? It is that race that we're in, and we're saying that I want to be more and more like Christ. At least that should be your objective, that should be your heart, that should be your passion, that I want more of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then when we preach eschatologically, that is, we need to look to the future, we need to have a perspective that this life is not our home, that we look to a future that is grand and beyond anything we can even imagine, when we'll be in the very presence of the living God forever, and we will enjoy him forever this should motivate us because this is also the thought of a Colossians 3 1 and 3 where Paul said to the Colossians look above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God amen is he not there he is and this should motivate us in life and then it is also this reality it is Hebrews 12 and we look to the example of Christ and even in Christ in his life he says for the what joy that was in front of him. Joy. He looked ahead. If you look too much in this life, you'll be discouraged. You will. If you look ahead, it's a motivation. What is awaiting me? It's the thought of a First Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. Uh, we don't, you know, weep, but we don't have sorrow like those that have no hope. We have a hope. Your loved ones that have gone before you, uh, it says, you know, we're going to meet him in the air. I want you to note it. Turn there with me because it, it, it's important. That I want you to note something here. Turn there with me. First Thessalonians 4. First Thessalonians 4. And then notice what he says, if you will. Um, we won't perceive those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself, verse 16, will descend from heaven with the shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him, them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Uh, do you look forward to that day? <laughs> I do as well. I do as well. I do as well. Notice, but I want, I want you to see is this. I love ones that have gone before me. My mom went before me at age seven. My dad went before me just before, you know, right after my graduation from college. 
My sister, I was, someone asked me just yesterday about my siblings and whether or not they were all in Orlando. I said, well, all of them moved back except for one. She's in a much better place. She's been in heaven for 10 years now. Forget Orlando. <laughs> it's not the city beautiful. The city beautiful is above, amen? <laughs> That's where she is. But I want you to notice something. We says we will meet the Lord, meet with them in the clouds. And then we will meet the Lord, and we'll always be with the Lord. The focus is not me re being united again with my mother or with my dad or with my sister or anyone else. It is the Lord. Amen? And it's good to have loved ones who've gone before you, but the Lord Jesus Christ surpasses them all, does he not? And somehow, there's going to be a, such a great transformation that it's impossible for us to have any need, any want, because we have the Lord. This is why I would tell people that would say to me, especially, you know, when I was playing, um, you know, uh, like football in college, and, and they'd say, well, hey, your mom's looking down on you. Really? <laughs> Or they say, now, man, you become a preacher, and I bet you, your mom and dad are looking down. And, really? No. 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 <laughs> they are with the Lord. Why look down on me <laughs> when you have the Lord? Amen? Why be worried about a football game at the Citrus Bowl when they have the Lord? They have the Lord. Now, I know in the natural, we may say, well, surely there is some element. I don't know all, but I do know this. The Lord will consume them. Consume them. No, no, and I would say, I was surprised. I told a person, no, why would they be looking down on me? They're with the Lord. You'll meet the Lord. You'll be with the Lord. This is why there must be eschatological preaching that gives you perspective in life. And I said to you earlier, our society is absolutely maddening. But eschatologically, we say, well, God will make all things right. Will he not? All injustice will, will be made right. The Lord. We are aliens and strangers, as Peter says. But one day, the last part I want to talk about in preaching is this. It's worshipful. It's worshipful. The experience itself is an act of worship. Why? Because the, the preacher involves in preparation, contemplation, and then he is involved in illumination. What do I mean by that? Uh, me preparing for this message, I had talked with George about it. He says, oh boy, I was kind of thinking this, but a miscue there, but let me rethink it, and this is what I think I'm going to do. So I had to change a gear, if you will. And I prepared and I thought about scriptures. What scriptures are relevant? How can that be said? What about this issue? What about what I already heard Todd say? And what about what I already heard Clay say? And what about what I already heard Lance say? And then I said, okay, Lord, I think this will honor you. Preparation. So I've been worshiping the Lord in my preparation. Then contemplation because you think thoughts about God. And you think about the reality of this great transformation that will take place one day and we'll all leave our sin behind. That's contemplation. And I think about what is the scripture. And Rene Posh is in fact correct in the Old Testament. 
3,808 times it says, thus saith the Lord. The Lord is spoken. The Lord is said. And so I contemplate thoughts like that. And then my mind is illumined. And by illumined, certain things are crystallized. At least I hope it's been clear to you. Because I realized, oh, that's right. That's that connection. That's a cross-reference to that. That's what this is communicating. And so it's a worshipful experience. And so when a person preaches the word of God, they're involved in worship themselves, and then they communicate that to other people, and the scripture is instructional, and it's exhortational, and it's applicational, and so now what happens is they learn that they should worship in spirit and truth. John 4. They learn Psalm 100. They should come before the Lord in thanksgiving and praise. They learn from Colossians 3.16 that they sing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs because the word of God is richly dwelling within you. They learn from Psalm 86 that they're to revere the Lord in accordance to his great name. They learn from Romans chapter 12 that my life is a living sacrifice. It is an act of worship. They learn from Revelation chapter 4 and 5 that one day... I can sing to the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain <laughs> to receive power and glory and honor and dominion. How do you go from being a sinner, someone that thought you knew God or you didn't know God, to God opening your eyes and you you, you read the word of God and it just, now it, oh, I see it now. And then he calls you to the ministry <laughs> and you become a preacher of the word of God. How does this happen? It's an amazing thing. And one day I'll be with the Lord. And one day I'll cry out to the Lamb of God. And one day it won't matter about which people are there or not because I'll have the Lord. It's an amazing thing. And it can only happen because of the word of God. Because God has spoken. And his word will not return void. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for these words you've given us. Give us grace. Amen. You have been listening to Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events and where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserves all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating all printed media, CDs, and digital files.